Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Saturday, February 10th, day 127 to the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our editor David Horvitz and U.S. Bureau Chief Jacob Magid. Hello to you both. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. We'll discuss statements attributed to U.S. President Joe Biden insinuating that Israel's response in Gaza is, quote, over the top. We'll hear about Biden's new conditions for military aid, and we'll talk about the IDF's next stop in the ground campaign, Rafah, as well as steps Israel is taking to help the economy in the West Bank. All this and much, much more when we're back. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So... Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. First, some headlines. The U.S. ratings agency Moody's downgraded Israel's credit rating Friday due to the impact of its ongoing war with Hamas in Gaza, lowering it by one notch from A1 to A2. Hezbollah announced that its leader Hassan Nasrallah has met with the Iranian foreign minister. Hezbollah published pictures from the meeting that took place in an undisclosed location. And after the meeting, the Iranian foreign minister said neither Iran nor Lebanon has sought to expand hostilities in the region. At the same time, Iran's football federation said it has asked world soccer's governing body FIFA to suspend Israel's soccer federation over the country's war in Gaza. The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry says the Palestinian death toll in the Strip since the start of the war has reached 28,064. These figures cannot be independently verified and are believed to include both civilians and Hamas members killed in Gaza, including as a consequence of the terror group's own rocket misfires. The IDF says it has killed over 10,000 operatives in Gaza. Let's begin with a statement from U.S. President Joe Biden that the conduct of Israel's military campaign against Hamas in Gaza was, quote, over the top. The remarks came at the tail end of a press conference, and the president was clearly speaking off the cuff. So, David, what do you make of this statement? Yeah, it's uh, important to clarify. These are not remarks attributed to the president. These are remarks that the president said, and uh, it was, to my mind, unclear um, to whom he was referring. I mean, we have to um, specify. He'd finished his prepared remarks and then he was actually on the way out of the room. There were lots of reporters shouting questions to him, including about the hostage negotiations and about uh, Netanyahu ordering the IDF, which the end of which was not audible. It was presumably relating to um, IDF ground operations uh, looming in, in Rafah at the south of the Strip. 
And he turned back and he said, the hostage negotiations, look, went back to the microphone. I'm of the view, as you know, that the conduct of the response in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, has been over the top. He then went on to speak at great length about humanitarian aid and too many people dying. It's got to stop. But because those initial remarks, he had said hostage negotiations and over the top, that was the phrase over the top that he used um, two days earlier um, to um, describe the Hamas response to the US-Israel-Qatar-Egypt framework proposal for another hostage deal. Uh, and therefore, there was lack of clarity. He didn't specify that he was talking about Israel. And um, yesterday, the, the White House clarified that, of course, he was talking about Israel. Uh, in the words of the White House press secretary, um, he wants um, the U.S. wants to see Hamas defeated. Um, she specified, but um, the president's been very clear that uh, uh, Israel must do so, must defeat Hamas, ensuring that its operations are targeted and conducted in, in a way that are protecting innocent civilians. So you know, now at least we've we've clarified what it was that the president was trying to convey and now we should wonder why it is that he wanted to convey that and why he spoke in those terms. It's not the first first time that he's spoken in very critical public terms uh, about Israel. He spoke about uh, indiscriminate bombing uh, several weeks ago Um, and he's not the only one. Secretary of State Blinken really, as far as I can recall, every time he's come here since the very beginning of the war after October the 7th, after the Hamas slaughter in Israel of October the 7th, uh, Blinken has, has stressed humanitarian uh, uh, assistance to, to non-combatants. He stressed the imperative to minimize harm to Gaza civilians. But on his last trip um, at the end of, of the week, um, which Amanda, we discussed on the podcast, you know, he spoke about Israel must not dehumanize Gazans. You know, that's that's much stronger language. And then one more thing that we should mention is that um, a pretty senior White House official um, was in uh, a, a conversation, according to a New York Times report at the weekend, a, a recorded conversation with American Arab leaders and um, was, was also very, very critical of the um, Israeli um, handling of the response to October 7th, or handling of the war, uh, and said gave his own assessment, which was that he, he has no confidence uh, in the Israeli government in the context of um, advancing towards uh, progress on Palestinian statehood. But there are a lot of comments there about the administration's response uh, to how Israel has itself responded to October the 7th and a, and a sort of semi-mea culpa that he was um, making on behalf of the administration for not, in his um, assessment, being sufficiently... Uh, concerned or, or being perceived to not be sufficiently concerned for Gaza civilians. Now, all of this, um, you, you know, you mentioned in your early uh, introduction there, the Gaza te- death toll and so on. Um, there are lots of people being killed in Gaza. Uh, the United States broadly, and, and I would say, you know, Biden most especially, and with the exception of, of the, the indiscriminate bombing remarks, um, until these comments the other day, had been broadly empathetic to Israel, um, endorsed the goal of eliminating, of, of destroying Hamas, um, recognized and, and had not forgotten what happened on October the 7th. He was you know, among the first to say this was the single worst day for, for Jewish fatalities since, you know, in, in conflict since, since the Holocaust. This is not an unempathetic president, but this is a president you know, now 
running for re-election in a very, very difficult um, climate for him uh, with other issues that he's grappling with, including age, his age now being back at the center of the dialogue in the United States. And you can see the, the American response and Biden is the overseer of that response. And when he says stuff that are particularly significant, you can see the attitude changing. And part of that is pressure at home. A little of that, at least, maybe more than a little of that, is this, this tremendous friction with the Netanyahu government, which predates October the 7th. The criticism from the states, including from the president, uh, that Netanyahu has uh, allied himself with people from the far right of the political spectrum. So you, you, you're in a bad context even before October the 7th. And then this you know, in, increasing friction and American vision for post-war Gaza that Netanyahu has all but... Um, said is not acceptable to him. You've had Biden saying after conversations with Netanyahu, well, I don't think he's quite ruled out the whole idea of a two-state solution. And then Netanyahu hammering back right away and said, well, I really, I have, uh, or I almost completely have. It's, you know, it's a very, very um, problematic relationship when that relationship is crucial to Israel's capacity to try and dismantle Hamas. This changing tone perhaps is also exemplified in a memorandum, Jacob, that was issued on Thursday, which requires allies who receive military aid from the U.S. to provide, quote, credible and reliable written assurances of their adherence to international law, including international human rights. Israel isn't mentioned in the memorandum, I checked, but it just seems to be on the heels of this rhetoric surrounding what's happening in Gaza. Would you agree with that, Jacob? A hundred percent. And White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre all but confirmed the connection. She said that this is on the comes on the back of conversations that we've had with members of Congress who have raised concerns about this issue. And Chris Van Hollen, who's a progressive senator who's been really leading this effort on calls to what he says condition aid to Israel um, to be because there's this concern that a lot of the U.S weaponry is being used in Gaza to harm civilians. And Chris Van Hollen basically came out after the White House made this memo issuing, saying that we are thrilled with this is exactly what we wanted. This will help uh, hold Israel to more of an account. Um, so definitely there's a connection. And right now, um, basically, according to the memo, countries have 180 days to provide these assurances. But those that are in active conflict, i.e. Israel, have just 45 days. So I guess there's a bit of a race against the clock. Um, but Karine Jean-Pierre basically said that we talked to Israel before we issued this memo and they reiterated their willingness to provide these assurances. I think she also made a point to say that this isn't really something, a new condition per se, in that Israel was all, all countries who receive aid who are always required to abide by international law, um, to make sure that the, any U.S. weapons are not being used in any sort of human rights abuse. Um, what's new, I guess, is that there has to be reported to Congress how these countries are doing and that there has to be this written assurance. Um, but again, there's not something new that Israel has to change its behavior theoretically. I think Israel says it's always abiding by international law, so there shouldn't technically be an issue. Um, but I think it's just going to be a question of whether this is more strictly enforced or whether this is just a symbolic bone that Biden is throwing to progressives to kind of keep them at bay. Um, and I tend to think it's more of the latter, um, because I think Gaza is less of the issue here, given that um, the U.S. is actively supporting um, the war, at least um, through the supply of arms. I think what's going to be more of a trick uh, challenge for the, the Israeli government um, with this memo is what it means for the West Bank, where the U.S. is much less supportive, and there's already t they've already started issuing sanctions against settlers. 
Um, and there's just a, a lot more, I, I think, of a microscope over Israel's conduct in the West Bank and vis-a-vis Palestinians there. Um, so that's where I think maybe there's, this memo could cause some problems. Now, it's not just the U.S. that is uh, taking this harsher tone. In statements today, Saudi Arabia and Egypt both warned Israel against carrying on with the massive push into Gaza's southernmost city of Rafah, which is, of course, the last Hamas stronghold in the Strip, where more than a million displaced Palestinians are sheltering. Our Prime Minister, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, has said that it is on the horizon for the next step in the ground campaign. But there is some assessment that Netanyahu is feeling, I don't know, the sands flowing from the hourglass. What do you make of that, David? Well, the the geographics of the Israeli military campaign in Gaza have been north to south. Uh, That was a decision taken amid the immediate chaos and horror of October the 7th, as uh, far as we know, and we have a piece high on the site now by Laser Berman, our diplomatic correspondent, talking about the planning for the Gaza operation overall and um, the leaving of Rafah to really the last. Um, It was very ad hoc. There was no uh, proper plan. Uh, And as Israel has moved south, as the IDF has moved south in Gaza, it has wanted to prevent Hamas from returning to the areas where it has operated and therefore, and it has encouraged and urged and assisted uh, non-combatants to move south. Well, they're now all, an awful lot of them, are at the very foot of the Gaza Strip in Rafah, which is right on the Egyptian border. Um, And Israel doesn't really want to um, enable a a massive... um, return north, uh, in part because it's not clear what people would be going back to, certainly in, in large part because they fear that Hamas would, would go back with the civilians uh, and many of the war's gains would be undone. I mean, this is a very complicated situation and there's a lot more to it than, than that. But the bottom line is you now have the army getting ready to tackle the last major um, area in Gaza where it has not tackled Hamas, but an area that is ordinarily dense and now incredibly densely populated, right on the border with Egypt, which is extremely wary of Gazans being pushed across, wanting to go across, having no choice but to go across into Egypt. It doesn't want that to happen. Warning Israel, reportedly um, warning Israel that the peace treaty might be at stake. Critical comments just in the last couple of hours, I think, from the Egyptian foreign minister. Um, And it's a really problematic situation, especially with, um, you know, we have to say, patience running out on the part of the U.S. administration uh, and increasingly overt criticism on the part of the U.S. administration uh, and a part of the uh, of the IDF operation where it will be harder than ever um, if there is a ground incursion um, to minimize civilian fatalities. So it hasn't started yet, as far as I know, in any kind of significant ground sense. There is Israeli targeting um, from the air, um, from out of Gaza overnight, I, I've seen reports. AP has a report of 31 people killed in Rafah this morning. It's never clear from those reports who's the, who those fatalities may be. Um, but it's a very, very difficult situation that Netanyahu and the IDF find themselves in. Uh, they will not want to cause civilian fatalities and casualties. They have not wanted to throughout this war, of course. Um, but the more you expose your troops to uh, greater risk, uh, the more you're going to get uh, um, fatalities and casualties on the Israeli side as well. And there is, I think, um, I'm right in quoting Netanyahu as saying that unless or until Israel tackles uh, Rafah, you know, Hamas cannot be defeated. There are still um, several, maybe five, 
um, Hamas battalions in the Rafah area uh, that would need to be dismantled. You know, I, I think there's a recognition that dismantling Hamas does not mean that every single Hamas gunman is no longer able to operate weaponry. It's, it's largely dismantling the organized military capability that Hamas has built up, and a lot of that is still in Rafah. We'll go to a short break. The surge in anti-Semitism since the October 7th attacks has changed the Jewish community's relationship with a slew of social and political issues. In the newest episode of The Glue, Jewish Federations of North America President and CEO Eric Fingerhut talks to Congressman Richie Torres, who has proved to be a pro-Israel bridge builder about everything from DEI to social media. Their conversation is fascinating. Listen to it and subscribe to The Glue with Eric Fingerhut wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Replacing the UN's relief agency for Palestinian refugees in the middle of the Israel-Hamas war would all but end in a humanitarian disaster, Jacob was told this week by Andrea de Domonico, who heads the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in the Palestinian Territories. What else did you learn from that conversation, Jacob? Yeah, so I spoke with uh, Andrea a couple days ago. Um, basically, it comes on the, against the backdrop of all these calls to replace UNRWA um, since this probe found that 12 of their staffers um, are implicated, participated in the October 7th terror onslaught. So there's all these countries lead, led by the U.S. That, that suspended their funding. And UNRWA is basically saying, we have until the end of this month. Um, if we don't get this funding back, we're not going to be able to operate. Um, the U.S. says it recognizes the importance of UNRWA, but wants, has to abide by congressional law that seems to be advancing and will likely be passed, which says that the U.S. cannot give any funding to UNRWA. Um, so basically, the State Department is looking at possibly funding the World Food Program or UNICEF, which is the UN Agency for Children, um, or other NGOs that are on the ground in the hopes that this will help uh, address the issue of the humanitarian crisis. But uh, basically, Andrea Di Damanico, who heads this OCHA office, which is the acronym, says that you this just is not viable. You can't simply unplug the humanitarian operation and just plug it in somewhere back. Because the moment it's unplugged, the whole effort is going to stop. Basically, you have UNRWA um, is by far the main agency leading the effort. It's got 13,000 workers on the ground. Um, obviously, most of those are probably not working right now. But um, there's no other agency that comes close to UNRWA's capacity. Um, I think, and that's basically why, because you have such large numbers that for the Israeli officials I spoke with, we're, we're like, of course, it was going to be infiltrated. It's a, it's a Gaza's being is run by a terror group. It's going to be part of. It's going to infiltrate every every section of the strip, and of course, UNRWA is part of that. Um, I think this Ocho official basically recognized these concerns, um, but just said, given the circumstances right now, trying to on the fly switch switch something up is just not viable. He pointed to the fact that UNRWA salaries, for example are much, much cheaper than um, other salaries for UN employees and other agencies. And then if we were to switch to another agency, we'd have to be, based off of UN bureaucracy, we'd have to pay much more. Um, and the idea that we're just going to move to a different agency, okay, fine, but then who are you going to use to staff that agency? You'll probably have to use local staff. So are you going to say that nobody from UNRWA can work in this team? Then you're not going to have very many people to do it. And it's not like 
there are people abroad lining up to give to join the humanitarian effort and into Gaza. Um, as this Andrea basically said that they're we're getting shot at hundreds of times since the war started. There's there's no deconfliction effort. It's very dangerous. The only people who are willing to help in this effort are people who are already living here and already stuck. Um, so he just felt it, it's not viable. And it was honestly kind of similar to what one senior Israeli official who reached out to me to brief me on condition of anonymity to say, basically, look, our policy is not to simply get rid of UNRWA in the middle of the war, that we recognize that it, UNRWA, there's nobody else to do UNRWA's work and that um, if it stops working, we'll have this humanitarian crisis, which will force us. There'll be disease, all famine, and we'll have to stop the, our, our fighting in Rafa and other places. We don't want that. But we do want, obviously, UNRWA not to be part of the day after, not to be part of the solution. We recognize that it's beyond repair, but we just don't want to focus on destroying it right now. Let's wait till we get a little bit further in the war. Now, what's interesting is that he's saying this on condition of anonymity because there's all these political calculations at play. And we have uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and others in the Israeli government who are very um, adamant right now, basically saying, yeah, we do want to get rid of UNRWA because they they recognize it's not politically... um, popular right now to talk about giving aid to Gaza. That's basically what we're seeing with all these protests um, in, on Karim Shalom and other places to block the aid from getting through. Um, so I think there's a bit of a, a dissonance in the messaging from the public versus the private, what Israel wants. Um, but I think the, at least the private messaging is kind of similar to what the Sunra official is telling me, which is like, you can't, this is just not a viable option to stop in the middle of the war. There's no other real agency that can do this work. There was a protest this week in Jerusalem outside the UNRWA headquarters in Jerusalem. And that made me wonder where in, shall we call it, the land of Israel is UNRWA operating? It's not just in the Gaza Strip, correct? Correct. Uh, UNRWA has an office in East Jerusalem, but UNRWA operates in anywhere where there are Palestinian refugees, according to the UN Charter. Um, so those are exist in all these all sorts of countries uh, around the around the region. So Lebanon, Syria, Jordan are the main other examples, um, and they operate in all those places. But obviously, the most prominent area that they operate is in Gaza. And it's actually interesting. I was learning this week that we we like to think of the UNRWA as operating for everyone in Gaza, but it's actually supposed to be specifically for people who are card carrying refugees, which is like seventy percent of people in Gaza. But the other 30%, for example, when there's no war, um, aren't going to their, like, those are not people that go to UNRWA schools. They go to other schools um, and they get services from other agencies. During the war, I think it's kind of a, just chaos and UNRWA is helping whoever it can. Um, but specifically, it's, it's supposed to operate for help people who are specifically Palestinian refugees, according to the, the UN Charter. A senior Israeli security official held a covert meeting with counterpart from the Palestinian Authority in Tel Aviv this week to discuss efforts to calm tensions in the West Bank ahead of Ramadan, but also to talk about how to boost the economy. Is this unusual, Jacob, this meeting in Tel Aviv? Yeah, I thought it was. Um, granted, when senior PA officials meet with Israeli officials, it's the, the, the fact that they usually often don't disclose the location. We did have this one crazy situation last year when Benny Gantz hosted um, President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. Um, but a lot of the times the meetings actually take place in covert places in the West Bank and it's just not publicized. But this one took place in Tel Aviv and it wasn't just, um, it was several officials, Hussein Sheikh, the PLO Secretary General, is also one of Abbas's closest aides, um, Majid Faraj, who's like the PA Intel chief. And then Sahi Anegbi, National Security Council Chairman, uh, Ronen Barr, who's the head of the, Ch- the Chin Bet, 
and Hassan Alian, who is the head of the COGAT, this liaison between Israel and Palestinians on civilian issues. So the sides got together to discuss how to calm tensions ahead of Ramadan, which starts around March 10th. So it's coming up. And that's also a lot of the factor in terms of Israel's uh, military campaign is also thinking about that date. But basically, the idea is to try to there's a recognition that the West Bank economy is in shambles. And this is because we have hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenues that Israel's withholding from the PA. Um, It's banning workers from the West Bank, Palestinians, about 150,000 of them from returning to their jobs due to security concerns. There are Arab Israelis who try to usually often shop in Palestinian cities like Janine, Nablus, Ramallah, who have not been allowed to return. So the economy there is being hurt. There's these hundreds of checkpoints that I've been told have been implemented throughout the West Bank to try to because of the security concerns, but those have limited movements and economic activity. So all those conditions have really created, I think, some sort of powder keg in the West Bank that that both Israeli and Palestinian officials are concerned about and what what they wanted to meet about um, earlier this week. And what Israel agreed, the officials agreed to at this meeting was to take a number of steps to try to address the situation. Um, they are going to be reducing, they said they're going to reduce checkpoints, uh, reduce the number of arrest raids during Ramadan, basically allowing a small subset of the 150,000, it'll probably be like several thousand workers above the age of 45 to return to their jobs in Israel. And then reopening also several Palestinian cities to Arab Israelis to allow them to return. It's already started in a couple cities, but it's going to be expanded to help uh, boost the economy a little bit more. There's also this issue of the tax revenues that Israel seems to be at first Smotrich um, was really blocking anything from being sent uh, because they didn't want any of it going to Gaza. So this large portion of the tax revenues wasn't being used by the wasn't allowed to be used by the Palestinian Authority. Now there seems to be some flexibility uh, on that regard where it's not going to be as high of an amount that's going to be withheld. So basically, you have all these steps that they're hoping to advance. Um, but I've been in this place where I, Israeli officials leak to me the, the specific steps that they're going to do. And then it takes months on months on months to actually get them done because uh, ministers like Batalas Mutrich are very much against it and try to kind of block the move or slow the moves down um, from actually being implemented. Nonetheless, for what I, for what I was told, the Israeli sec- uh, security establishment is optimistic that they'll get this through cabinet discussion. And at least because they're somewhat minor steps that we'll be able to get some of them in before Ramadan. Jacob, thank you for all these updates. And David, thank you for your insights. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for joining us today on The Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Pod Waves. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. <laughs>